Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other kinds of church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. Hey, everybody. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here, and I'm joined by my dean of students and professor of Old Testament, Dr. Peter Lee, professor of New Testament and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church, Dr. Paul Jean, and Tommy Keene, our academic dean and professor of New Testament. And here we are in, gosh, I think it's episode four-ish, four, five, four, five of five. Tough, Tough Techs. There you go. <laughs> that was not planned, <laughs> dear listener. But it came out so well. I think uh, I have a suspicion that Peter planned it. <laughs> Tough text. And we're going to continue on with difficult teachings of the scriptures. Some of these are going to be apologetic. Some of them are just going to be straight up. I'm not sure what that means. And what do I do with that? Or I've heard people apply this and it just doesn't quite feel right. And so the text that we're going to be looking at today shows up in the Gospels. It shows up in the Synoptic Gospels. So we find it in Matthew 12, Mark 3, Luke and Luke 12. And this uh, text is one that often is cited and remembered. And yet I think there's a lot of confusion as to how to understand it. So Peter Lee is going to read for us this, this passage because I see that he's got his Bible open in front of him to it. So he's he got re- a real Bible, yeah. not, not a phone Bible. He's a real pastor, and he's got a real Bible. And he's going to read out of Matthew 12 this uh, section dealing with this question of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin, as Jesus calls it. So we're going to read through this part, remembering that this does show up in Mark and Luke as well. Right. So, uh, And I was going to mention that, that uh, the parallel passages in the— um, in the Gospels is in Matthew, I'm sorry, is in Mark chapter 3, verses 28 and following. Uh, it occurs again in Luke chapter 12, verse 10, but the passage we're going to read here and focus our thoughts are are on uh, Matthew 12. This is in the context of um, Jesus casting out a demon-possessed individual, Pharisees confronting him and saying the only reason he was able to do this is because he is essentially the prince of demons. He, he possesses the the spirit of Beelzebub, uh, Jesus responds by saying, your argument makes no sense because then you'd have a house fighting against itself, uh, and what's the logic of that? Mm. And it's in that context then that Jesus responds with our tough text passage. In Matthew 12, verses 31 to 32, he says, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. All right. So there you have it. And how ought we to interpret this passage? What's what's going on here? Is this really a sin that even if you believe in Jesus and repent and have faith, you still, it's just, it's just one step too far? Is that how we understand it? You just can't come back from this? Uh, from this failure, um, or do we understand it in a different way? How, how should we approach this? And I think the Old Testament people have talked enough now because we're outside. <laughs> we're in the epilogue. This so is the you thing guys that you can do in the academy. Is at any point you can say, I, I don't know about this. This is beyond my... <laughs> right. I, I don't want to get outside my lane, guys. Yeah, that's right. You know, we just honor your expertise on these topics. So let me kick it over to Tommy Keen and Paul Jean. Well, one thing to kind of, I think, start with is, you know, Jesus is 
this is part of an ongoing conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders in Judea. Mm. It's very, it's uh, very situated. Um, and one of the other things that should be mentioned is Jesus has a tendency to speak in hyperbole. So yeah. we, we can't immediately conclude that this is a kind of propositional statement that's true at all times and in every way, in every respect, that there is something that we should title the unforgivable sin in all capital letters. Um, because, you know, at some points Jesus does say things like, uh, it'd be better for you to cut off your arm and your leg than yeah. to... Uh, you know, to to look lustfully at somebody, so yeah. we don't and, cut, and we, and we gouge out that, our eyes. We know that apostles committed sins after this teaching, and we don't know right. apostles cutting off limbs. Right. We so, have we have an example of an apostle who perhaps committed this sin, Judas, mm-hmm. and we have an example of an apostle who, you know, uh, Peter, who denied Christ two more times than Judas did, yeah. and yet is restored. So. Yeah. That's a good point. We should yeah. not approach this as if it's perfectly clear and discernible, and we need no other text than this one to understand what's going on. Ha- having said that, um, we do have other texts. You know, we do have other spots that talk about mm-hmm. a a kind of fall a fall into sin that is uh, seemingly irredeemable. I'm thinking of Hebrews six, and I yeah. think of First John, the sin unto death. Um, and similar language, not in this age or the next, will it be forgiven? And mm-hmm. and so there does seem to be this idea here um, that there is a particular kind of sin, and Jesus labels this a sin against the Spirit, that is particularly heinous and as such will not be forgiven. And are we right to point out that this is coming right after the Pharisees see Jesus doing acts of miracles, casting right. out demons, and... They say he's doing it because he's demonically empowered, and then he gives us this teaching. So could we reference what he's saying in light of yeah. what they've just said? Yeah, and, and so a couple of things combine at that point. One, Jesus associates his miracles with testimony of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. They are not—he's not just super gifted at miracles. He's been yeah. filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit testifies to the authenticity— the, the, chosenness of Jesus as Messiah by the doing of these miracles. And I think actually we can go even a step further. The casting out of demons, I don't know, I'd be be interested to hear your thoughts on this, Peter, because there's really not a precedent for this in the Old Testament, the casting out of demons. It's it's very unique to Jesus, and it, it seems to function in the Synoptics as sort of the pinnacle display of his authority and the kingdom that he brings, the fulfillment idea that he is the victorious Messiah. So especially maybe these miracles as testimonies of the Spirit and the sending of Christ and the authorization of the Father that this is the Son of Man, this is the King. So here we're seeing the, the Spirit's power at its finest, maybe. And we, and we saw, before we go back to the Old Testament on demons, we, we, we saw him receive the Spirit. Right in his right. baptism in Matthew, he ascends out of the water, right. and the Spirit descends on him—a very Trinitarian moment—and then the Father declares who Jesus is, as the Spirit descends on the Son—a very Trinitarian ordination for his work that's about mm-hmm. to begin. So, it's a good important thing to remember that Jesus needs the Spirit to do his ministry, right. and that seems to be assumed in this interaction he's having with the Pharisees. Yeah, I agree. The um, 
It is interesting. The uh, I, I I agree, Tommy, that the the uh, the idea of demonic possessions or demonic activities um, definitely seems to be heightened here. You do have a mention of demons here and there, but it's fairly subtle in the Old Testament. It uh, it's not really recorded in the historical books, but uh, Leviticus makes references to a, a demon spirit that the Israelites worshipped in the wilderness. Yeah. But it just mentions it in passing. That might be something behind the the scapegoat as the goat of Azazel, uh, kind yeah. of a demonic idea, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, Taking the infection out of the camp. Yeah. The demonic infection right. or something. It could yeah. be something like that, but it's fairly subtle. The um, the uh, What is interesting, though, is that the, the highest places of uh, miraculous activities in the Old Testament, and, and I think that's important for people to keep in mind, when we talk about Old Testament miracles, it's not like they lived seeing like an no. axe head floating every day. Like right. a, they weren't at Hogwarts. No, it's not the way. I mean, Old Testament life, for the most part, was very much very like well our said. life. Yeah. Profound. It's a profound <laughs> comment. But it connected with me. I got uh-huh. it. Thank you. You see, that, that, that resonated it's the with kind me. Of, it's the kind of profundity you can expect from yeah. RTS yeah. Washington. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Top, top drawer and bottom drawer. <laughs> you know. Absolutely. The, the highest concentration of, of miracles really was within uh, Moses' day. Yeah. Um, where it seemed very quantitatively, um, um, uh, it was just a lot of it. Uh, then maybe in the Elijah, Elisha days. Yep. Um, and then really, then you don't really see it again until the New Testament with yeah. Jesus. But I agree that the if there is a time for the demons to be active, here are the times, these, these real high points of redemptive history. Yeah. Um, and of course, with the coming of Christ, here is sort of the the linchpin. Here is the the cornerstone. If if you can neutralize Christ in a manner of speaking, uh, that the entire redemptive house of cards is going to collapse. So yeah. it makes sense that the time and the place um, historically that Satan and his demonic forces are going to be the most active is going to be right here. Hmm. Yeah, it's a, it, I was gonna say, yeah, in the Old Testament, the, the one other place, and it's never, the language of demons or unclean spirits isn't used so much, but you do get these kind of spiritual forces acting at a religio-national level, right? right? You have the false gods being referenced as they're just false spirits. Yeah, Prince of Persia. Yeah, and, and then you've Rome. got the Prince of Persia. This, this, there is this kind of idea, and it's hard because a lot of it's in prophetic poetry, so you're not sure how, you know, this is probably what Paul's talking about when he talks about principalities. You know, he's referencing something along those lines, but this idea that nations had spiritual beings behind them. But that's about it. Yeah, you don't get a lot of demon, unclean spirits, exorcism action. There are some references of it in Qumran, I know, of yeah, exorcisms absolutely. and demonic activities. Yeah. Makes you wonder um, if this is a post-Hellenization way yeah. of talking about some of these yeah. issues. Yeah, and that's what you're seeing in the New Testament yeah. here, yeah. Well, I love everything Tommy said. I, I thought it was said so well. Um, I concur wow. with Tommy. Gray's not here for those. <laughs> so we're, we're starting to learn the hierarchy. <laughs> so Peter and I are apparently at the bottom of this <laughs> bucket. No, it's Gray, then me. We just get the crumbs right. and everything left over that falls on the table. So, you know, this the question of, like, blasphemy um, of the Holy Spirit, I think— it's raised for at least two reasons. One, I think people wonder if they've committed it. And if they have, then what's the point of like any spiritual 
I guess, exploration at that point. Generally, what I try to encourage uh, people to consider is if they are sincerely and profoundly concerned that they have committed this sin, that in itself is probably a sign of life and that they should not be overly concerned. I'm not sure if you guys agree with that. <clears throat> right. But I think people also wrestle with it theologically because they begin to ask the question, well, is there basically a sin that God can cannot forgive or is there basically an act that Jesus' blood is, I guess, insufficient for? I, I think that's the struggle that many people have. Um, the way I think about this passage is that there's something unique about it from a redemptive historical perspective. So specifically, you know, Matthew highlights Jesus coming in terms of like the realization of like every Old Testament promise. So I think there might be something unique in this situation where you have both Jesus present mm. and the Spirit working simultaneously or together that makes maybe, not 100% sure, the possibility of committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit with these details perhaps impossible outside of this specific redemptive historical yeah. context. Maybe. I think that's really yeah. helpful. Maybe. I mean, and that helps explain maybe why Jesus says you can blaspheme the Son, right? But that's not that's not the unforgivable one. That's forgivable. Don't blaspheme the Spirit. Perhaps what he's saying is 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 making this kind of um, distinction, sort of a humble distinction. Like, understandably, you may see me and not recognize who I am, and yet if you reject the wholesale Trinitarian. Mm -hmm. Nature, and I know he doesn't say the Father here, but I think that would be, you know, just as we saw with his baptism, that, that would be involving the whole of this work. You know, it's not just the Son, it's not just the picture of Jesus, but it's rejecting the empowering, regenerative, miraculous, sign giving power of the Spirit testifying to Jesus of the Father, Justifi testifying yeah. through Jesus of the Father. That That's a more kind of wholesale rejection that we might say, how does that happen today when we don't see Jesus walking before us? How does that happen today? That happens in a life of unbelief, right? Yeah. Of, of open, long-term rejection of the Lord, okay? You know, Paul kind of puts language on this in 1 Corinthians twelve three, the Apostle Paul, when he says, no one can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. Actually, first says, no one can say Jesus is accursed, and I think we could put in parentheses there, and mean it mm -hmm. if the Spirit is within him, right? Uh, I mean, I just said those words in a row, but I don't believe that. Right. But you can't say that and believe it if the Spirit is within you. Likewise, you can't say, and Jesus tells us this in John 6 too, you can't believe that Jesus is Lord unless the Spirit indwells you. See, I think there's a lot there because um, immediately after, you know, this passage that we just read from Matthew, and this really echoes, I think, what Scott just said, uh, Jesus goes on to say, you know, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its, tree, uh, and mm. its fruit bad. No. And then he goes on to say, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? And this well-known verse, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. No. So it's interesting. It's basically what Scott said, No, I mean, even in context. Yeah, but I think you're right. It, it's it's, in, it's in, in terms of inauguration of the kingdom, right, the way we talk about these things, and the inauguration of the kingdom, here's Jesus in front of them doing the work of the Spirit given to him by the Father. You know, that's kind of, I mean, if you reject him now, you're rejecting him forever, right? Yeah. 
And yet, and yet, and yet, so there, there's something special to that scene, right? And yet, how do we? And yet, we can expect to see that worked out in the life of the church in a in a, in a different way, in a redemptively historical, already not yet way. And then we see that blasphemy completely eradicated in the new heavens and new earth, right? That's no mm-hmm. longer a thing that happens in the new heavens mm-hmm. and new earth. I think the redemptive historical point is 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 key there. I might apply it a slightly differently, but it the it's it's this new reality that the spirit is the the spirit poured out on the messiah jesus inaugurating the age of the spirit yeah. that brings the possibility of this sin into uh into focus that there's um that it is a kind of redemptive historically specific kind of situation i do think it continues on into the present period of the church because the spirit is Mm-hmm. The spirit of the resurrected at Christ is still at work, and to add, to add a tough text to a tough text, never a good idea to explain a tough text with it's another an tough text. Uh, way of having scripture interpret scripture. <laughs> yes. yeah. um, Let's take two dark passages. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, this is Hebrews six, yeah. which which posits that it, that somebody who commits this sin. Um, which is falling away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. So it's impossible to, to restore somebody, to re- and by the way, it's to repentance. So to your yeah. point, Paul, yeah. it's the, the idea is not that this person really wants to repent but, but, uh, or is repenting, but it's too late. They, they can't enter the state of, repentant. So if you are repentant and you are worried and you are fearful, this is precise. You, you, you can't have committed this sin because... Yeah, that's a good sign you're, you're not one of the people who committed that sin. Right, yeah. because you are in the state of wanting to repent. Mm-hmm. So, but there is this category that, that will persist in unrepentance. Well, what's the sin? It's, it, the sin is uh, apostasy after... Uh, being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, and sharing in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And there's all sorts of theological questions that I have about what a, that type of person might be, but we do have a category of person who has a kind of faith, a kind of belief in Christ, a, a belief in Christ, and they even receive some of the benefits mm. covenantally therein. So mm. this, you know, the seed is sown, and there are plants that flourish. For a while, uh, so they're they're receiving some benefit of Christ, knowing it as a benefit of Christ, sharing in the Holy Spirit in that respect, and then rejecting it. Right. This is not good. This yeah. is evil, and calling what is life, calling it death. Mm-hmm. So I think that's actually helpful because you get that redemptive historical emphasis that you were mentioning, Paul. The Spirit is being poured out in this unique way. You also it's you can't accidentally fall into this sin you can't it's not saying some magic words it's not yeah you know um uh, trick somebody into saying it yeah, yeah right you knowingly have experienced the work uh, the blessings and the work of Christ and yet and, and know them as good and yet then sometime later reject them as evil as the work of the devil or however you conceptualize that. So, Tommy, you're like looking, you know, after the death and resurrection of Christ. Would you say like an Old Testament analogy for this Hebrews description would be like King Saul or even 
King Solomon. That would be, yeah. they would sort of meet that criteria almost. Yeah, so, and Hebrews itself, when it talks about this in Hebrews 12, I think, yeah. um, uses the example of Esau. Mm-hmm. So Esau, he's in covenant. He has ex- experienced and been exposed to the work of the Father mm-hmm. in his life. Was circumcised. He was mm-hmm. circumcised. He uh, experiences the blessings of the covenant and then knowingly, deliberately rejects them twice, two two times, um, in preference of, uh, you know, earthly things. And so whether that's the unforgivable sin or not, I think think we want to maintain something uniquely redemptive historical about the presence of the Spirit there, Um, but it's certainly used as a type of Mm -hmm. this sin. Yeah, though he sought it with tears. Right. But, but he I, couldn't bring himself to repentance. He couldn't bring himself to repentance. So That's worldly really sorrow. Yeah. Maybe we need to have another tough text about Saul. I, I, I have a I have a hunch I think Saul's gonna be in heaven when we get there. Ooh. I think Jeez, he just, I, I think he just lost the spirit of kingship. That's all he lost. Well that's but definitely we true. can set that that's aside. Uh, <laughs> but you know, this I, I think this is a great this is a really helpful way of talking about it because it does get at there's a real thing that Jesus is saying here. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's talking about a real thing. He's not just speaking symbolically. Um, and yet we have to understand him in light of the rest of, of, of what he does with the apostles, the rest of his teaching, not, only, not to mention the apostolic teaching. Yeah. So what this would seem like is that there's a difference, as you, as you mentioned earlier at the outset, Tommy, there's a difference between Judas and Peter. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's a difference between Judas and Peter and the Apostle Paul, who's going to raise a hand against the church, seek to kill them, become the chiefest chief of sinners, as Paul will say of himself later as a result of this. And yet when confronted with the risen Christ, he responds with repentance. Right. And, and, and so Judas and Peter, I think, are especially instructive because as an outside observer, I would not be able to tell the difference between these yeah. two sins. Yeah. You know, and there's an important pastoral point there is, you know, somebody who grows up in the faith mm-hmm. and, and then they reject Christ sometime later on. Can I definitively say they have committed right. the unforgivable sin? I'm, I would say no, I yeah. cannot. Yeah. be definitive about that. I don't know who's written, whose names are written in the book of life. That's right. I can't distinguish between Judas and Peter until Peter repents. Yeah. That's the distinguishing factor. That's how I know he, whatever sin he committed, yeah. it's a backsliding, it's not a final falling away because he's, he is brought to repentance. I find the Old Testament helpful here. Yeah. As we as it usually is <laughs> in this matter of to do. It's, it's useful for the New Testament. It's useful for oh. the New Testament, or you know, it is the uh, the scriptures that the you know that we have inspired commentary of in the New, uh, because a lot of the work of the Spirit that is mentioned in the Old Testament is um, directly uh, connected to repentance. In other words, we can repent because the Spirit worked within us. Um, uh, you know, in Ezekiel, it talks about uh, once having hearts of stone, that now we have hearts of flesh because of the the work of the Spirit in renewing our hearts so that we may repent, that, that type mm-hmm. of idea. And if we think about it in the context of our salvation, I mean, here in Matthew, in Mark, and Luke, uh, we have uh, a, a historic example of a blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, a good work of the Spirit of God that is being 
labeled as a as a demonic act but the idea of the spirit doing a good work beyond this point i think is definitely what we see we're all saved because of that mm-hmm. our salvation is essentially what the eternal decree of god god the father that is accomplished by the son that um is applied to us by union to christ by the work of the spirit uh which is why and even calvin remember talks about you know what good is the accomplished work of christ unless we can be united to that by the work of the spirit so there is a, a way in which blasphemy in the spirit doesn't allow us to be united to christ and thus be saved yeah. um which is perhaps a reason why there's a, that distinction there mm-hmm. um that you can be uh you can repent of a of a false doctrine of christ but if you misunderstand the work of the spirit you're undermining the whole essence of your salvation because you cannot be united yeah. uh, necessarily to um uh to christ i think uh uh, Calvin, I think, if I remember, I was once labeled as being the theologian of the Spirit mm. because he so emphasized this objective work of the Spirit in uniting us to Christ, uh, so emphasizing, you know, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those Old Testament passages that talks about the the Spirit of God that renews our hearts so that we may repent, so that we may believe, uh, which is why I think it's so important to see that a person who does believe, who is repentant, is only able to be repentant because the Spirit has renewed them. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think th- there's a lot of theological stuff that's going on there, and would be helpful to have just whole episodes about. But you know, how does this match up with our Westminster standards? Can you can you then lose your salvation? Can you lose union with Christ? Well, n- no. In fact, our confessional standards, the title is not uh, faith; it's on saving faith. There's this particularly specific kind of faith. Yeah that saving faith, and it's that kind of faith that will persevere and persist um, to the end, that shouldn't, that, in fact, that kind of implies that there is a kind of faith that is either a counterfeit yeah. of saving faith or embryonic. It, it might right. flourish and grow into saving faith, but it's not that uh, yet. And there are blessings that one receives as a result of those kinds of faith, even though that they haven't flourished yet and flowered into full, mature mm. um, saving faith. And we should not reject those blessings. If, if I find myself tempted in that way, I need to press on yeah. and, cons- and, and, and continue on. So those are, you know, those are there are theological issues there for which Gray would be helpful. Um, but I do think we have confessional grounds to, yeah. to conclude all of those things. Yeah. And biblically, I think we have to conclude some of those things. Can the Spirit work in somebody that does not have saving faith? Well, yeah, Jesus himself tells us that, right? That some will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Mm-hmm. And I will tell them, be I gone never, from me, I never, never knew you. you. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. It, in, in, as we look at some of the voices in church history, you know, Thomas Aquinas lists kind of six manifestations of the sins against the spirit he called he, he highlights despair presumption resistance to known truth hmm. envy of the brother's spiritual good what he means by that is being envious of others who are blessed to receive grace um in penitence so lack of repentance and obstinacy you know and even that with these kind of six sins laid out which i think every christian has wrestled with and struggled with in their life of faith, 
you know, it, it doesn't mean that you can't be forgiven of these things, mm-hmm. right? But what rather we're talking about is a kind of lifelong mm-hmm. persistence in these events and mm-hmm. these activities. John Calvin says this of it. He says I, in the Institutes, I say, therefore, that he sins against the Holy Spirit, who, while constrained by the power of divine truth, that he cannot plead ignorance, yet deliberately resists, mm-hmm. and that merely for the sake of of resisting. So again, he's really tying this to really the opposite of faith, which is rebellion, open rebellion against God. That's knowledgeable rebellion. We're not talking about somebody making a mistake or misunderstanding the situation, but that there's an open rebellion against God while under the constraint of divine truth. In other words, knowing the truth and like the demons knowing and shuddering. Right. And so it's interesting, I think, because we you know we know that faith is not a work. It's a gift of God. And yet it seems as if what Jesus is saying here is that the opposite of faith, hmm. the persistent rebellion and rejection of God is the sin right. that cannot be hmm. repented of. So it's more than I've heard people say before. Well, that's just the sin of unbelief. I'm like, I think he's saying more than that. I think he's saying it's not just a lack of faith. It's it's actually open rebellion that faith comes and remedies through the regenerative, regenerative work of the Spirit. Yeah, it, it's, it's worse than mere unbelief because, and I'm going to Second Peter 1 now, um, which is its own you know, similar text that I'd line up with this, yeah. to, because it's knowing that having known the truth, rejecting it, you're actually worse off yeah. than having never believed to begin with. So there, yeah. is, a, there is a higher... Yeah. Higher judgment and condemnation. Judgment because you have experienced the goodness of, you know, right, those Hebrews, the goodness of it and rejected it. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks, brothers. Another tough text checked off the list. Done. <laughs> Fixed. Tough, made easy. Without gray. <laughs> Even without gray, we managed to pull it off, guys. Good for us. Riding with training wheels on here. All you need is he the may Bible. Not, he may not agree. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, a great conversation. Thanks for participating in it. We look forward to the nef- next tough text uh, to come down the line. And we'll continue this through the fall. And then we'll probably break into another series and return to tough texts as, uh, as we stumble upon ones that we think would be important to discuss in this group. Hey, listen, let me also remind you, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. is a nonprofit organization that relies on revenue from tuition and from fundraising. A lot of people don't realize that as a school, tuition only pays about 50% of our budget. So if you're enjoying this podcast, we are thrilled and we want you to continue enjoying it and we like to provide it for free. Or if you're in the women's Bible study on Tuesday mornings and you're enjoying that, we love providing those resources. We'd also ask you, would you consider giving or including RTS Washington in your monthly giving, no matter what amount, just just to help us as we serve the community in the Washington, D.C. area and the United States and beyond with not only training pastors for the next generation of church leaders, but also just providing these kinds of community offerings like the podcast, like our evening lectures, like our women's Bible mm-hmm. study. Thanks for considering us in your monthly giving. It's been great talking to you all this week. Look forward to being with you again next week. Until then, take care.
you know we what? were talking about in your Fine. back though. Why why do you only cite Gray as the guy who you go with? You say huh? I agree. I only agree with you. you keep saying well whatever Gray whatever says. Whatever Gray says. Whatever Gray says is my opinion. And we realize we all realize that you've never said this about any of the rest of us. Oh really? So do I say it that often? It comes out. <laughs> it's it's a lot. You called him it's Gray the wi- you called him Gray the Wise for about a year. <laughs> That's just the way he talks. I was like. <laughs> Wait, how does he talk when you hear that again? That was a good invitation. <laughs> I, I like Ray. I think that's great. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we're all taking it personally, Paul. I mean, if you're going to say over the top things, you got to spread them out. But yeah, why no, is Gray the norming norm here? Come on. Yeah. You know, I always give you praises, you but then you, do. I, I don't but then think you that dismiss No, I say you've been looking very chiseled. Then. <laughs> <laughs> or I call mm-hmm. Peter like the most Maybe humble man. 